Good evening, my very dear brethren and sisters, and particularly this evening, our dear young people. I would like to give you all a very warm welcome to our fifth study this evening around the life of Hezekiah to the theme, The King Who Trusted in Yahweh. And if we can cast our minds back to the last study we enjoyed together on Saturday evening, we were reminded of the great power of Yahweh as he created in his people a right spirit and he healed them and they came unto Jerusalem and indeed kept a great and a wondrous feast before Yahweh their God. And since we met together on that occasion, we have had the opportunity to gather to remember the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've had the opportunity to examine ourselves, to see whether we be in the faith or not. And therefore this evening we do indeed look forward to the words of our brother Carl again as he speaks to us to the theme, The children are come to the birth and there is not strength to bring forth. Let us therefore open our activity this evening with a word of prayer after we have sung together of our confidence in our God through the words of anthem number 43. Our theme this evening, brethren and sisters and young people, the children are come to the birth and there is not strength to bring forth. And it is to be based this evening upon the words of Isaiah chapter 36 and would ask that our brother Samuel Mansfield would come forward and read that for us. Reading with you, Isaiah chapter 36. Now it came to pass in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the defence cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem unto King Hezekiah with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. Then came forth unto him Eliakim, Hilkiah's son, which was over the house, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah, Asaph's son, the recorder. And Rabshakeh said unto them, Say ye now to Hezekiah, Thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? I say, sayest thou, for they are but vain words, I have counsel and strength for war. Now in whom dost thou trust that thou rebellest against me? Lo, thou trustest in the staff of this broken reed, on Egypt, whereon, if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all that trust in him. But if thou say to me, We trust in Yahweh our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah hath taken away, and said to Judah and to Jerusalem, Ye shall worship before this altar? Now therefore, give pledges, I pray thee, to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give thee two thousand horses, if thou be able on thy part to set riders upon them. How then wilt thou turn away the face of one captain of the least of my master's servants, and put thy trust on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? And am I now come up without Yahweh to destroy, against this land to destroy it? Yahweh said unto me, Go up against this land and destroy it. Then said Eliakim and Shebna and Joah unto Rabshakeh, Speak, I pray thee, unto thy servants in the Syrian language, for we understand it. And speak not unto us in the Jews' language, in the ears of the people that are on the wall. But Rabshakeh said, Hath my master sent me to thy master and to thee to speak these words? 
Hath he not sent me to the men that sit upon the wall, that they may eat their own dung and drink their own water with you? Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language and said, Hear ye the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus saith the king, Let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in Yahweh, saying, Yahweh will surely deliver us. This city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus saith the king of Assyria, Make an agreement with me by a present, and come out to me, and eat ye every one of his vine, and every one of his fig tree, and drink ye every one the waters of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware, lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, Yahweh will deliver us. Hath any of the gods of the nation delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arphad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? And have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who are they among all the gods of these lands that have delivered their land out of my hand, that Yahweh should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? But they held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was, saying, Answer him not. Then came Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, that was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder, to Hezekiah with their clothes rent, and told him the words of Radshakeh. Thank you, Brother Samuel. Let us then, brethren and sisters and young people, give our undivided attention to our brother Cal Parry as he leads us in this evening's study. The children are come to the birth, and there is not strength to bring forth. Chairman, brethren and sisters, and my dear young people. We now move on in the record, brethren and sisters, to sweep past some 13 years to the life of Hezekiah. We've thrilled with the greatness of this king. We've understood his disposition to trust in God. And now that very trust, which is so prevalent in the record, is now put to the most burning test because now the time came when God was to move in the affairs of Judah and test the very heart of the Reformation. Had the word of God touched them? Had they been moved and 13 years had passed since that initial day and God was to sorely try the intention of the nation? Now during those 13 years the temple services were fully established. Hezekiah had prospered on every side. In fact, the Philistines had been destroyed as well. It was so far a very successful reign. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, there had been the brutal onslaught of the Assyrians in the north and they had swept aside the whole of the ten tribes and taken them away captive. And although Judah was spared, the threat of political extinction was a haunting reality to those in Judah. There was only 50 or 60 miles separating the two capitals. 
That's how close Judah was to political extinction. And like the anvil, Judah lay between two hostile forces. Assyria in the north with its absolute burning lust for conquest. And Egypt in the south which wanted to re-establish its former grandeur and former power. And poor Judah, with a king who put their trust in God, was the meat in the sandwich between those two ever-present powers. In the eleventh year of Hezekiah, the king of Assyria, Sargon, was murdered and his younger son, Sennacherib, assumed power. It was during this time that all of the Middle East threw off the yoke. Philistia, Egypt, Ammon, Moab, Jordan, Phoenicia, the whole of the Middle East turned away from Assyria. There was a new power, a new environment sweeping through the Middle East. What was Hezekiah to do? He threw off, says the king's record, the yoke of Assyria and rebelled and served him not. Why did he do that? Was it right or was it wrong? Did God agree or disagree with throwing off the Assyrian yoke? Well, the record is deliberately and peculiarly silent on that issue. There is nothing in the record either way that tells us whether it was right or whether it was wrong because the record is asking us to think very carefully about this situation. Everything Hezekiah had achieved had been done with establishing the truth in Judah and rebuilding that truth. And now he was at a crossroads. The opportunity came to throw off the yoke of Assyria and he's faced with a decision. Do you follow suit or do you remain the same? And the record is peculiarly silent, young people, because it's asking us to think very carefully about what Hezekiah is doing. We are faced, brethren and sisters, with decisions like that every day of our life. There is no clear-cut answer we're not talking about decisions of right and wrong. Those are obvious. You choose the right. But frequently in life there are decisions where they both seem right. And we weigh out the pros and the cons of either decision. We can work out the good points or the bad points. And what do we do? Which way do we go? What's right and what's wrong? Isn't that the same dilemma? Isn't that the same situation that we face? Should we take this job or that job? Should we do this or that? Life's like that, isn't it? Difficult decisions. When we come to 2 Kings 18, I want you to notice the framework in which that decision was made. Highly significant which the words which occur in the record concerning this decision. In 2 Kings chapter 18, In verse 5 we read, He trusted in Yahweh Elohim of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. For he clave to Yahweh and departed not from following him, but kept his commandments which Yahweh commanded Moses. 
In our first study, we saw, didn't we, the power of that trust of a man glued to his God. And in verse 7, we read that Yahweh was with him and he prospered whithersoever he went forth and he rebelled against the king of Assyria. Now, the reason why that immediately follows verses 5, 6 and 7 is because God is telling us that the decisions that he made in life were based on his trust in God. Trust in Yahweh, says Psalm 37, and do good. And sometimes we are faced with decisions that we don't know where to turn. There are pros and cons on both sides and the record is saying, trust in God and do good. Sometimes it doesn't matter what the decision is as long as we trust that God will benefit the outcome and he will prosper us in the things of God. And that's the disposition, the frame of mind that Hezekiah made that very difficult decision and he served him not. For two years, three years, there was peace and harmony in Judah. And then in verse 13 we read, Now in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah did Sennacherib, king of Assyria, come up against all the fenced cities of Judah and took them. You know, we read that verse very quickly, don't we? But the horror of that invasion, the absolute horror of that invasion, can only be understood when we examine the crushing brutality of Sennacherib and all that he stood for. On the overhead here, we have a picture of Sennacherib's prison, the Taylor prison, and it is Sennacherib's account of this invasion an account which boasts in all its pride and arrogancy of the 46 cities that he took and the 200,000 captives he took into captivity. And remarkably enough, there is absolute silence about the campaign against Jerusalem. A man whose ego couldn't possibly record in stone for posterity the defeat that he felt. It was a brutal campaign. The next transparency shows us a picture of one of the Assyrian kings, Tiglath-Pileser. This was the Assyrian king who demolished the region of Galilee. We have our family photographs taken when we're smiling, maybe with the children round about us. This photograph, etched in stone for posterity, shows the Assyrian king drinking to the glory of his gods and there on his arm are two leashes and at the end of those leashes are hooks in the jaws of his captives. That's how he liked to be remembered in his photographs. Can we begin to understand the motivation of flesh in the Assyrian monarchy? And that's not an isolated picture. In the next slide, we have etched upon the walls of Persepolis the Assyrian troops. There they are, 
and there were thousands upon thousands of those crack professional troops. Gorgeously arrayed in silver, crimson, with their gold and brass helmets, fearsome, invincible, thousands upon thousands of them crashing through the land. And the record says they came to the cities of Judah. In the next slide, we have the way in which they do their maths. It's not a matter of recording how many people survived, it's how many heads they can count. And the more heads, the greater the victory. And there on that slide are the scribes recording unceremoniously, impassionately, the number of heads which had been taken in the conflict. And they came against the cities of Judah. In the next slide, we have the city of Lachish. We read in 2 Kings 18 and verse 14, And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria to Lachish. Now that picture there is based upon a base relief that Sennacherib hewed out of the stone in commemoration of that invasion. It was a mighty city. It was a city that had two series of walls and a rampart, heavily fortified and protected. And the Assyrians, in all of their ego, have recorded the invasion against that specific city, not Jerusalem, but Lachish. Just keep your hand in Kings and come across to Micah chapter 1. Do you ever wondered why Lachish was singled out? Yes, it was a strategic town. It did lie upon the route through the hills and fortresses of Hebron through to Jerusalem. But it was singled out specifically for this reason. In Micah chapter 1 and verse 13. O thou inhabitant of Lachish, bind the chariot to the swift beast. She is the beginning of the sin to the daughter of Zion, for the transgressions of Israel were found in thee. And Micah, who was the prophet of the country, as he went through those valleys, came to Lachish. And it was the city of Lachish that was first to introduce the abominations of the northern tribes. And therefore it was Lachish that was to receive the brunt of the fierce anger of Assyria. In the next slide we have an artist's depiction of the siege of Lachish based upon the engraving that Sennacherib made. It's the Assyrians there with their power and the ballistics, their force overcame and there would have been in that city a remnant of brethren and sisters. How would you like to be in those circumstances, brethren and sisters, with you and your family in a city like that, the forefront of the Assyrian aggression? In the next slide, we have the actual a Syrian depiction in the centre there of the battle against Lachish. And you notice the crucifixions 
as people were impaled naked upon the stake. That's the way the Assyrians rewarded those who fled for their lives. Can we begin to understand, brethren and sisters, the evil of this invasion? We read it so quickly, don't we, in the record, but consider those things. When we come back to 2 Kings 18, we read in verse 14 that Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria to Lachish, having heard all of that brutality and barbarity, having heard the stories of the impalements and the evil and the death and the stench of death, he sent to Lachish saying, I have offended. Return from me. That which thou puttest on me will I bear. And the king of Assyria pointed unto Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Imagine how he felt. He had put his trust in God. He had reformed the nation. God had prospered him on every side. He committed his way to God and God had blessed those decisions. And now this. And you can imagine his mind, the turmoil, the agitation, the depression, all this happening to us because of a decision that I made. And his world had collapsed. And doubtless he was asking the questions that we ask. Why is it happening? Is God punishing me? Is it a trial? What is the purpose of this all? Has God forsaken me? You know, those are the questions we ask when we make decisions and we put our trust in God and everything seems to go wrong. And our world comes crashing around our feet. We've been in those circumstances, haven't we, brethren and sisters? And the righteous are not exempt from the difficulties of life even though they do commit their way to God. Imagine how he felt. Imagine how he felt. There is no record of prayer in 2 Kings but all the way through the songs of the Greece there are urgent appeals. Urgent appeals. Asking God to deliver him from all of this evil. He poured out his heart to his God. We don't know if we just had the king's record, his motive, but we'll see that in a moment in the chronicle's record. I have offended. Imagine the galling humility of saying to that monster, Sennacherib, I have offended. And Sennacherib appointed to him an exorbitant amount of money. In fact, today's money, it would run into billions of dollars. There was no graciousness, you see. No graciousness whatsoever. He placed upon that king an exorbitant amount of money. And look at the language that Hezekiah uses. That which thou puttest on me will I bear. It's the language of a burden bearer. It's the language of a servant. 
In the words of Isaiah 53, he bore the sins of many. He carried their burdens. It was through their transgressions, as we shall see, that this was occurring. Whatever you put upon me, it doesn't matter what it is, I will bear that burden. He bore their griefs and carried their sorrows. You know, brothers and sisters, that was a tragic moment in his life. In Isaiah chapter 10, just keep your hand in Kings and come across to Isaiah 10. It was Isaiah the prophet that had explained why the Assyrian was there. It was left to this prophet to reveal the true purpose of this suffering upon the nation. They had transgressed and he was bearing their burdens. In Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 5, O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. I will send him against an hypocritical nation and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil, to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. In verse 6, the prophet said that he would send them against a hypocritical nation. And what that means is, young people, is, is that the Reformation of 13 years hence was something that was in danger of failing. In those glorious first years of his reign, he had changed their heart and given a new direction to the nation. But you see, time had passed, as time always does, and it dulls the sense of revitalization. And they were standing now there in hypocrisy, giving lip service to the things of the Reformation. And God says, now is the time when I will send them against a hypocritical nation to take a spoil and take a prey. That's the meaning of Isaiah's son, Maha Shalal Hashbaz. Speed to the spoil, hasten to the prey. And God says, I will tread them down like dirt in the streets. It doesn't matter what decision Hezekiah made before, whether he threw off the yoke or decided to serve the king. It was God's purpose, says Isaiah, to bring the Assyrian and like a razor to shave the nation from head to toe because of hypocrisy. You know what hypocrisy is, young people? Hypocrisy is when the mind and the life is not true to God. When we had the television on, Monday to Saturday, absorbing the filth of that kind of environment, and we come Sunday to seek forgiveness and cleansing. It's when we're driving in our cars, young people, and we have the latest rock station blaring across the car through the stereo system. We walk into the hall and we sing songs to God. Hypocrisy is a way of life that we feel very comfortable with because we can do our service on Sundays and we can live our life the rest of the week any way we like. Who's watching? 
I want you to understand when you've seen those slides on the transparencies what God thinks of hypocrisy. It's a life that is a lie and God rewards it accordingly. I will tread them like dirt in the streets. And when we come back to Second Chronicles, sorry, Second Kings chapter 18, and we see the exorbitant amount of money that the Assyrian king placed upon this king. What would you do in those circumstances? There was no money in the bank to pay that kind of money. The royal treasury, treasury was inadequate. There's only one other place that held anything like the funds that he needed to pay back that money and that happened to be the temple. Now what would you do, brethren and sisters, if you were faced with a decision like that? You've got a massive bill to pay. If you can't pay that kind of money, you know what will happen. The siege of Lachish will be repeated all over the land. And the only way you can pay the money is by taking the funds from God's house. How would you like to make a decision like that? That house and the service which meant so much to Hezekiah. For 13 years, the Chronicles record tells us that the people poured their money into that place to support the priesthood and the Levites and the work of God and the money was there. But the money had been offered to God willingly by the people Hadn't Achan, who stole the money which had been given to God, perished accordingly? How would you like to make a decision like that? What would you do? There's no easy way out, is there? And God does that. He sometimes makes the way very difficult to test our attitude, our motives whether we just crumble in a heap without faith. Whether in our own strength we attempt to manoeuvre our way out of the situation or whether we put our trust in God and do good. Do you know what Hezekiah did? In verse 15, Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of Yahweh and in the treasures of the king's house. At that time did Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of Yahweh and from the pillars, the Hebrew word is the doorposts, which Hezekiah king of Judah had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. The gold and the silver. What would you do? In Isaiah chapter 66, you needn't turn to it. The prophet Isaiah had said to the people, and it possibly may even have been recorded at this time, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? 
For all these things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been. But to this man will I look, even to him that is of a poor and a contrite heart, and trembleth at my word. The gold and the silver meant nothing compared to people's lives. And when he saw people impaled at Lachish, and families being destroyed, then gold and silver was worth saving them. In 2 Chronicles 32, we are told the motive of the king. Let's look at this. 2 Chronicles 32. We read in verse 2 of 2 Chronicles 32 that when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib was come, that he was purposed to fight against Jerusalem, he took counsel with his princes and his mighty men to stop the waters of the fountains which were without the city, so they did help him. They tunnelled through solid rock. to stop the water from reaching the Assyrians. In verse 5, he strengthened himself and built up all the wall that was broken and raised it up to the towers and another wall without and repaired Milo in the city of David and made darts or swords and shields in abundance. There was wise precaution, prudent activity. But if we'd have left it there, it would have simply been the arm of flesh fighting against the Assyrian. But look at the words of verse 6. And he set captains of war over the people and gathered them together to him in the street. Where have you heard those words before? In the street of the gate of the city and spake, as the margin says, to their heart. The word street there is the same word as the word street in chapter 29 and verse 4 where the Reformation started. Where in those courts with 14 Levites he moved their hearts to change the nation and here he was in a street. It wasn't the same street but the connection is being made by the scripture. It's another start, another address, another speech to instill confidence in men and he spake to their heart. We saw that on Saturday. As he spake to the Levites who on their own accord had gone through and had assisted those from the north who could take the Passover and here he is again. Tremendous king, able to reach people's hearts, to look you in the eye and with a genuineness and sincerity to speak to your heart. There's no hypocrisy in him. Verse 7, his words were courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be not afraid, nor dismayed. Where have you heard those words before? They are lifted straight out of Joshua chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. When Joshua had just taken the responsibility of captain of the host, and Yahweh encouraged him with the same words, be strong, courageous, be not afraid or dismayed. And we can see this man 
This is only a summary of his speech, going over the campaigns of Joshua, explaining how Joshua, through faith, defeated all of the enemies because God fought for them. We can see him, can't we, instilling confidence in those people. Be strong. Be strong and have a good courage. The book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, says Joshua chapter 1, and thou shalt meditate therein day and night. Be strong. The strength that he encourages is not a raw courage that's devoid of faith and understanding. People in the world have that. A raw courage to face enemies, that's not the courage Hezekiah sought. It's a courage to meditate upon the word day and night. That's what instills confidence. That gives us strength. It's a source of consolation that the world knows nothing about. And it takes faith and dedication to absorb and to meditate and that gives us strength. The end of verse 7, he said, There be more with us than with him. Just keep your hand in Chronicles and come back to 2 Kings chapter 6. Do you know where he got those words from? You see, he knew his Bible. He knew the incidents which had surrounded the nation. Second Kings chapter 6. We read of Elisha. In verse 15, when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, an host compassed the city both with horses and chariots, and his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? It's a similar situation with the city being ringed by horses and chariots. Elisha said in verse 16, Fear not, same words that Hezekiah used. For they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Those are the words that Hezekiah used. Because in verse 17, Elisha prayed and said, Yahweh, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And Yahweh opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. And we can see Hezekiah speaking to their heart, don't be afraid. Yes, there is an arm of flesh around them, but look beyond that. Lift up your eyes. From whence cometh our help? Cometh from Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. With him, in verse 8 of Second Chronicles 32, is an arm of flesh. But with us, is Yahweh our God to help us and to fight our battles. You know, that's an incredible expression. An arm of flesh. And we're going to see later on, God willing, in our next study, the theme of the arm. It's all the way through Isaiah. But just store that phrase in your mind. With him is an arm of flesh and with us. And for those of you who may be aware of the Emmanuel prophecies in Isaiah, there was a son to be born called 
Emmanuel, power with us. And those two little words were picked from that context and instilled in their heart. There is power with us. Even the smallest words are significant. He's there to help us and to fight for us. I wonder, brethren and sisters, whether we see life struggles like that. I wonder whether we see in all the difficulties of life beyond those things and is God for us. If he's for us, says Paul, who can be against us? Or is life just one big muddle as we stumble from one crisis to another crisis, one devastation to another without understanding why? without seeking a reason behind those things, without placing our trust upon God. I wonder, brethren, whether we really see life struggles like that. Our God is for us to fight with us. Those are impelling words in a crisis like Hezekiah felt. That's faith. That's trust. When you're faced with a vicious enemy which has one intention only, to destroy your life. That's trust. God is there to fight for us. And the people listened to that. And they listened intently. And he touched the cords of their heart because verse 8 says, and the people leaned themselves upon the words of Hezekiah. Incredible. As the servant prophecy in Isaiah 50 verse 4 says, that Yahweh hath given me the tongue of the learned that I may speak a word in season to those that are weary and they leaned upon his words. What an expression. That is the power of sincere speech, young people. That is the power of the words that we can speak. As Paul said, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers, words need to be put to use. There's a purpose behind them, the use of edifying. They are ministers, they're like servants that go forth to accomplish an errand. That they may minister grace to the hearers. What's our speech like? Rough? Arrogant? Tainted with the flesh of the world? With its double meanings? What's our speech like? And they leaned upon the words of Hezekiah. Oh, that we had voices like that. That we could go to a person who's in trouble and touch their hearts with our words. And how frequently it is that we, we see a person in distress and we don't know what to say. Do we say this? Do we say that? What if I say something to upset them? And we don't know what to say. But this man knew exactly. A word in season is like 
fruit of gold in pictures of silver. The right time and the right words and the right circumstances to make people trust in God. That's the language we need, brothers and sisters. We take up the record now in Isaiah 36. In fact, Isaiah 36 is a duplication of the king's record. But I want to come to Isaiah because we'll be spending some time in the record of Isaiah. There is something wonderful about the prophecy of Isaiah. It's a difficult book to grasp hold of, but it yields its rewards when you look diligently at its pages. You may have been puzzled as to why Isaiah 35 is suddenly disrupted with the account of Isaiah 36 through to 39. In fact, it's even more puzzling when we recognise that it's but a repetition of the king's record. We're going to speak more specifically about the reason for that in our next study, God willing, but sufficient to say this that the record of Isaiah 36 to 39 deliberately breaks the themes of the prophecy. You see, Isaiah's prophecy is not in chronological sequence. It is a grouping of thematic chapters. There is a distinct mood change in the second half of Isaiah. So much so, of course, that the critics, in their stupidity, say that it couldn't have been Isaiah who wrote that second part. But, of course, they're ignorant of the word of God and its power. But the mood changes are based upon Isaiah 36 to 39. You see, Rabshakeh introduced issues about who is the true God. And Isaiah 40 to 66 takes that issue up. Isaiah 36 to 39 talks about Hezekiah's faith and his service. And 40 to 66 take that issue up as well. The blindness and the sin of Israel faithlessness of that servant, the leprosy of Hezekiah, the salvation of the people, the calling of the Gentiles, those are all issues which are mentioned in these chapters and they become the substratum for Isaiah 40 through to 66. And there's another reason which we'll deal with God willing tomorrow night which is absolutely stupendous. The way in which the framework of these chapters just draws upon this incident of Sennacherib and Hezekiah. We read in chapter 36 and verse 2. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem unto king Hezekiah with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool in the highway at the fuller's field. Here is the introduction to the serpent Rabshakeh. In fact, Rabshakeh is a title. It really is the Rabshakeh. And the word Rabshakeh in the Assyrian language means chief of staff. And you don't reach second in command of the Assyrian Empire without cunning, brutality, intelligence, and a PhD in propaganda. This man was incredible. He came with his authority, a great army. We can see himself detaching himself from the troops, striding forth in all his arrogancy, 
a master of many languages. He spoke Hebrew fluently. Before he got there, a man whose intelligence was absolutely stunning in its accuracy, except for a few mistakes. He'd taken people captive. He'd interrogated them. He knew exactly what was going on in Jerusalem. He knew exactly Hezekiah's trust. He knew exactly their innermost thoughts. It was a remarkable speech. Here he comes, pacing forward in all his arrogancy. And every eye is upon this man. Before he got there, the situation in Jerusalem was an absolute disaster. In Isaiah 22, which I'd like you to turn to, we have the record outlining the state of that city. burden of the valley of vision, says verse 1. It's a vision against Jerusalem. What aileth thee now that thou art wholly gone up to the housetops? Thou that art full of stirs, a tumultuous city, a joyous city, thy slain men are not slain with the sword nor dead in battle. He was talking about all these people racing up to their rooftops to look at the Assyrian as they came across the mountains. In verse 12, Yahweh called a feast of weeping and mourning and baldness and girding with sackcloth. And there is all of those words heaped together to show that there had to be some type of contrition. And what was their response as they raced up to their housetops? Verse 13. And behold, joy and gladness, slaying oxen, killing sheep, eating flesh, drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. They were having parties. Last chance of life parties. Eating and drinking. What's the use of living? Tomorrow we shall surely die. Where is the faith of that? And the Reformation, which had so assiduously and deliberately been implemented by the king, was in danger of falling apart by the seams. Do you know how Isaiah felt when he saw that? In verse 5 it's written that he said it was a day of trouble and of treading down and of perplexity by... Adonai Yahweh of armies in the Valley of Vision, breaking down the walls and of crying to the mountains. And he burst out weeping in verse 4. I said, look away from me, I will weep bitterly. Labor not to comfort me because of the spoiling of the daughter of my people. And this brave prophet upon his knees, don't look at me, he says, bursting out crying. Weeping and wailing for the tragedy that was befalling the city. They were being destroyed by the Assyrian and being destroyed by their faithlessness. They were busy building their defences. Hewing out this incredible tunnel which we all know. Hezekiah's tunnel. And the prophet says, you don't even bother to look at the foundation and maker thereof. 
Who do you think put the water there? In verse 15, there was a man called Shebna, who was the epitome of faithlessness in the city. Thus saith the Lord Yahweh of armies in verse 15, Go get thee unto this treasurer. He was the man that had made the payment of the tribute to the Assyrian king, and there was nothing left in the bank. He was over the house. He had a responsible position. And what was his attitude? Verse 16. What hast thou here? Over the house. And whom hast thou here that thou hast hewed thee a sepulchre here, as he that heweth him out a sepulchre on high, and that graveth an habitation for himself in a rock? And it's as though the prophet has surprised the man, as the man is very carefully chiseling a sepulchre in the rock. And the prophet says, what have you got there, Shebna? Shebna turns around flustered as he was hewing out a sarcophagus. What kind of faith was that? Over the house. A man of responsibility. Others looked up to him. His name means to lead captive and that's exactly what God said to him I'll get you like a ball he said and I'll toss you into a far country and lead you captive that's the epitome of faithlessness to prepare for your death by making a monument that your sons if they survive may look upon that sarcophagus and say what a great man you were God says I'll toss you out like a ball to a far country but there was another man, Shepna, beside Shepna. In verse 20, it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. Eliakim, God shall set up my servant. And he stands in the record as a symbol of the Messiah of Emmanuel, of the son that was to be born of a virgin, in symbol only. Why is that? Because in verse 21 and 22, God says, I will clothe him with a robe and strengthen him with a girdle. I will commit thy government into his hand and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That's the language of Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, which was spoken of the Messiah. And this man was to be a ruler with the key of the house of David upon his shoulder who bore responsibility. The government was upon his shoulder. The father of futurity. When we come back to Isaiah 36, with all that background, we can now begin to understand the power of Hezekiah's speech. He not only had to speak to their hearts, he had to stop the parties. He had to tell them that with them is an arm of flesh, but with us is an arm of spirit. You think of the difficulty in all of that background, and all of that partying and tragedy of faithless people like Shefna, of grasping those people in their hearts and making them rest upon his words. And now comes the final test. Here he is, Rabshakeh. And he stood, says verse 2. 
by the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. We have here a map of Jerusalem. And there on the bottom right-hand corner is the city of David, outside of which was the water gate. If we look at the next slide, we can see more specifically the area of that city of David where the tunnel was chiseled by Hezekiah. You can see there that outside the city walls is the Gihon Spring. That was the exact spot where the Rabshaker stood. The exact spot. Now the record is specific. What is the reason for the exact geography of his position? Well, let's come back to Isaiah chapter 7, because here we have the key to this confrontation. See, many years ago, Hezekiah's father had been presented with the identical, the identical problem, an invasion by a northern enemy. It was another siege. In verse 1, the end of that verse, Reason and Pekah went up toward Jerusalem to war against it. It's almost the same language used of the Assyrians. How did they respond? Well, in verse 2, their heart was moved as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. They were absolutely scared stiff. And a man came along called Isaiah, the salvation of Yahweh, with his son. And we read in verse 2, Yahweh said to Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou and Sheer Jashub, the remnant shall return, is what his name means, thy son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. That's the identical spot that Rabshakeh stood. And Isaiah stood with his son, the remnant shall return, which really spoke of two things. One, that those in captivity would be rescued. And secondly, those who believed in God would return to God. It's a double meaning. And he stood there and he said in verse 4, Take heed and be quiet. Fear not. That's the identical words that Hezekiah spake to the captains upon the wall. Be strong and of a good courage. Fear not. Now what is the significance of this spot? The conduit of the upper pool and the highway of the fuller's field. Well the conduit was that channel that took the water from the virgin's fount outside the city into the city walls. It was the lifeblood of the city. There were several natural springs around the city, but that was by far the most uh, pure and the most consistent. You stop that water and Jerusalem will be in trouble. In the word of Isaiah, it represents the word of God. 
the waters of Shiloh that go softly. And the water came from the virgin's fount, Gihon. And that's why this particular prophecy was crowned with a prophecy concerning the virgin birth. Because Gihon means the virgin's fountain. The bursting forth of life from the fountain was to be used as a symbol of God producing life for those people. The upper pool inside the city was the receptacle, the reservoir that had been chiseled out by man to receive the water. In Jeremiah 2 and verse 13, it represented God. And the highway, which is a theme of Isaiah's prophecy, is a way of life that connects the two. And there was next to that highway a fuller's field. And the fuller in Hebrew times was the person who washed the clothes, who sanctified people. And in that very spot that spoke of cleansing and the provision of God's salvation, Isaiah stood to face Ahaz and said, listen, don't be afraid. You see, the issue is explained for us at the end of verse 9. If ye will not believe, surely you shall not be established. The issue is trust and faith. It was a very simple black and white issue. If you believe God, he will establish you. If you don't believe God, he won't establish you. The choice is yours. And there was absolute silence from Ahaz. Now you think of that. The choice is yours, Ahaz. You believe God and you'll be established. You don't believe, you won't be established. And there's absolute silence. Do you know why? Because the next verse says, Moreover, Yahweh spake again to Ahaz. There is no recorded response whatsoever. What kind of heart is that? As Hezekiah wrote in Proverbs 25, the heart of kings is unsearchable in the context of Isaiah 7. Absolute silence. So God had to speak again in verse 10. Ask thee a sign of Yahweh thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height. Here's another opportunity. I can help your faith, Ahaz. Believe what I have to say. Ask me a sign. Anything. Anything you like. And what was his response? It wasn't, well, let me think about it. Or can I come back to you? In verse 12, he said, I will not ask. Neither will I tempt Yahweh, as if to justify his response. What an attitude! In verse 13, God replied, and we can see the anger of this reply. Hear ye now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary man, but will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself, God himself, is going to be involved in this sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Power with us. 
And that is a theme that goes all the way through Isaiah's writings. A virgin conceiving to bring forth power with us. Now when we come back to Isaiah 36. And the rab shaker is standing on that spot with all of that history of Isaiah 7 crowding on the field. He opens his speech in verse 4. Thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, what confidence is this wherein thou trustest? And he was standing on it. And we're going to see that Hezekiah's response is in exact accordance with that theme. Where is your trust, he said. And he was standing on the spot where God had said, Power shall be with us. On the overhead here we have a summary of the serpent, serpent speech of Rabshakeh. We're going to briefly look at this speech and you'll be amazed at how subtle it is. I've called it the serpent speech because right at the end of his speech he happens to quote the words of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. His first attack comes in verse 5. You say, but they're vain words. I have counsel and strength for war. Now on whom dost thou trust that thou rebellest against me? The first attack was that Hezekiah was a vain hypocrite. That's the opening charge. They're only vain words. You don't really believe them, do you, Hezekiah? We're going to see the Rabshaker is the master of psychological warfare because he knew that if you can destroy the will to fight, you've won the city. So it's a battle of two minds. The thinking of the flesh and the thinking of the spirit. You're speaking vain words. And you say, I have counsel and strength for war. Do you really believe that, Hezekiah? Counsel and strength for war? I can see a few ramshackle walls here. Which you hastily constructed. Do you really believe you'll get help from Counsel and strength for war. Where is your army? And unwittingly, he was quoting from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. He didn't know that, of course. Where it said, Of a rod that shall come forth from the stem of Jesse, that the spirit of counsel and might shall be upon him. Same two Hebrew words. In verse 6. Do you trust in Egypt? Do you really believe you'll get help from Egypt? It's like leaning upon a shaft, and the shaft breaks and it goes through your hand. Leaning on a staff. But they were leaning upon Hezekiah's words. Egypt won't help you. You can see the disdain. Egypt, nothing. Verse 7. 
But if thou say to me, we trust in Yahweh our God, you see, he anticipates the answer. Who do you trust in? Well, if you say you trust in God, is it not he in verse 7, whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah hath taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now, that's his first mistake. You see, in his flippancy and in his arrogancy, he assumed that the altars that Hezekiah had taken away belonged to Yahweh. But they belonged to pagan idolatry. That was his first mistake. But you see the disdain there. What kind of God is this you worship if he allows Hezekiah to take away his altars? How can you trust in a God like that? See the venom behind that? In verse 8, now therefore give pledges, or the Hebrew idea is, I'll make you a bet, is the taunt of the speech. Look, I'll lay bets with you. If you can find 2,000 men, I'll give you 2,000 horses. See the scorn, the sarcasm. You can't even find 2,000 warriors to put on my horses. Now that's an interesting jibe. You see, when Hezekiah came to the throne, Isaiah chapter 2 says that the land was filled with horses and chariots. And it's obvious from this taunt of Rabshakeh that Hezekiah had got rid of nearly all of them. Because the law had said in Deuteronomy that the king should not put his trust in horses. And Rabshakeh drives right to the point. You've got rid of all your weapons, Hezekiah. You've obeyed some stupid law that says you're not allowed to put trust in horses. See the barbs behind that? And verse 9, How then will thou turn away the face of one captain of the least of my people? You won't be able to even defeat one of my generals. Now you can see him undermining their will to fight, demoralizing the opposition. And this is just a summary of the speech. He would have gone on and on and on in that vein. In verse 10. And am I now come up without Yahweh against this land to destroy it? Yahweh said to me, go up and destroy it. How do you combat that argument? Didn't you know, Hezekiah, that God has sent me? How did he know the prophecies of Isaiah? How did he know that he was the rod of God's indignation? How did he know it's God's purpose to send the Assyrian? See the barbs. How do you answer that? God has sent me, Hezekiah. Why resist? He was attacking by blasphemy. Now Eliakim in verse 11 and Shebna and Joah listening to this speech as is everyone on the wall in perfectly fluent Hebrew. And of course they're getting agitated. And the longer it goes on, the more agitated they become. And I say, look, please, please, in verse 11, look, uh, speak Assyrian. We can understand Assyrian. But Rabshakeh said in verse 12, Hath my master sent me to thy master and to thee to speak these words? Hath not he sent me to the men that sit on the wall? Look, I'm not sent to you, it's these people. You're more important than these people. And that, of course, got him going again. In verse 12, he said, it's my purpose to tell the common people. And if you resist, you will endure the horrors of the siege. 
you'll even eat your own excrement. They knew what he was talking about. They knew what siege warfare was like. They knew that month after month after month drove people insane because they couldn't eat and drink. I'm sent to the common people, says Reb Shaker. You're listening? So they can avoid all these horrors. In verse 13, Rab Shaker stood, and the Hebrew is, he took his stand, and he even more firmly stood upon the same spot where the same promise of hope was given. See the way the record is presenting that? Then his virulence reoccurs in verse 14. Let not Hezekiah deceive you, saying that Yahweh will surely deliver this city, this city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Look, Hezekiah's out to trick you. Do you really trust him? He's there to trick you. He says that Yahweh will defend you. Where's the proof of that? This city shall not fall. And we can imagine him with resolute purpose looking at those people. This city shall not be defended. In verse 15, he once more attempted to undermine Hezekiah's credibility. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in Yahweh. Look, all this religion is forced on you. Do you really want it? You are quite happy in Ahaz's day. Don't let this king make you believe. He's changed your life around. He's reformed the nation. Don't let him do that to you. Don't let him push you around. Don't let him force religion upon you. Stand up for your own well-being. You know, the world says things like that. You recognize that kind of language? In verse 16, look, let's make a deal, he says. If you surrender, you will be allowed peace and security. And the language he uses about people under their own vine and fig tree is the language of the kingdom in Isaiah 2. Look, I can give you something better than the kingdom of God now. Verse 17, it'll be temporary. You can enjoy a change of scenery. I'll come and take you away to an equal land, a glorious land, just like yours. Change of holiday, change of scenery, do you good. And 2 Kings, you needn't turn to it, chapter 18 and verse 32 says that you may live and not die. And that's the language of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. Look at all the idols, all the religious cranks around. That you may live and not die. Incredible, isn't it? And his final attack in verses 18 to 20. The full venom of atheism. Religion can't save anybody. Here's the full venom of atheism. Look, look at all the idols, all the religious cranks around, all the people who put their trust in so-called gods. Look at them. Have they delivered the cities out of my hand? That's the proof. You want proof? There it is. Religion can't save you. 
Now you imagine sitting on that wall listening to that. Behind this incredibly arrogant man with all his sophistication and blasphemy is the power of the Assyrian army in all their splendor. And you're listening to that. And Rabshakeh stops. In every other city, in every other siege, in every other situation, he had some response from the people. Some heckled him. Some have thrown stones at him. And he stood there in absolute silence because we read in verse 21 that they held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's command was saying, Answer him not. Answer not a fool according to his folly, says Proverbs 25 verse 4, lest thou also be like unto him. And we read those words, but think of the influence of this king's leadership. In a huge group of people, there is always some person who's going to make some smart comments in a crisis like that. Human nature is like that. But you think of the influence, the leadership of this man, that when he said, don't answer him a word, that's exactly what they did. Because he touched their heart. And he moved them like no one else had to trust in God. That's power. The power of the word in the heart. They held their peace. It's like the walls of Jericho. Not a sound. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says God. Eliakim rent their clothes and brought the message to Hezekiah. And I'm sorry we'd have to go over time by five or ten minutes, but I want to get to the end of the story because it's powerful indeed. They came in with rent clothes. They didn't do it at the commandment of God, but now they did because they saw the blasphemy of this day. Here they come into the royal courtyard. Coming before Hezekiah. And imagine how Hezekiah felt listening to that blasphemy. We know he felt. It's recorded in the Songs of Degrees how he felt. Deliver me, he said, from arrogant words, deceitful lips. And as he listened to that language, reproach would have broken his heart. He would have prayed to his God. But the prayer is not recorded in Isaiah 37. Instead, the scripture deliberately emphasizes what he did rather than what he said. Because in verse 2, he said to Eliakim, who was over the household, and shepherded the scribe and the elders of the priests covered with sackcloth, unto Isaiah the prophet. He said to them, look, I want you to repeat these words in verse 3. This day is a day of trouble. See the margin? That's a direct quote from Isaiah 22, verse 5. It was Isaiah's own words before the siege. And of rebuke. And of blasphemy. And here's our theme. For the children 
are come to the birth, but there is not strength to bring forth. What is he alluding to? He's alluding to the promise given at the virgin's fount. The promise of a child. The promise of Emmanuel, power with us. And the king was saying, look, the struggle of faith is going on. Faith is working, it's conceiving, it's moving people, but the children are still having trouble. They're struggling to come to the birth. We need strength to bring forth. It's obvious that Hezekiah had that promise in mind. Now he asked Eliakim to speak those words to Isaiah because Eliakim was the symbol of that virgin child. He was the father of Jerusalem. Upon him, the government, upon his shoulders, the government stood. It may be, in verse 4, it may be, we can't presume upon his mercy, it may be that Yahweh will hear the words of Rabshakeh. Wherefore, at the end of the verse, lift up thy prayer for the remnant that is left. That's the meaning of Sheer Jashub's name. The son that accompanied Isaiah at the virgin's fact. And you know what God's response was? In verse 6, thus saith Yahweh, be not afraid. It was the same language given to Ahaz it was the same language that Hezekiah spake to the people on the wall. And God picks up the same language, be not afraid. I have heard. Behold, in verse 7, I will send a blast upon him. He shall hear a rumor. And he shall return. And Rabshakeh is still waiting for an answer. And he's waiting and waiting and waiting and nothing comes. And so in verse 8, Rabshakeh returned. An incredible drama unfolding. And then the Egyptians come. The Egyptians upon whom some of them put their trust. And they came racing up to tackle the Assyrian. And Rabshakeh heard about that and wrote letters back to Hezekiah and said, Don't trust in Egypt, we will destroy them. And the Egyptians came up and were smashed by the Assyrian. And now there was nothing else stopping the Assyrian. Nothing else. And Rabshakeh dashes off a letter back to Hezekiah. And says, You've got nothing else left, Hezekiah. And your God can't save you. In verse 14, chapter 37, Hezekiah received the letter. In grief, he went up to the house of Yahweh and spread it before Yahweh. It was a moving prayer. A moving prayer. This was his response to crisis, to spread the problem before God. 
O Yahweh of armies, Elohim of Israel, that dwellest between the cherubim, thou art the Elohim. Even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, thou hast made heaven and earth. Incline thine ear, O Yahweh, and hear. Open thine eyes, O Yahweh, and see, and hear all the words of Snacrib, which has sent to reproach the living God. That phraseology is poignant with significance. And unfortunately, we haven't time to look at all of those phrases. But it was a moving prayer indeed. Now, therefore, in verse 20, O Yahweh our God, save us from his hand. That is the issue. Salvation from the hand of the enemy. And Rabshakeh with his serpent mind and the Assyrians with their brute force symbolize sin and death in all its ugliness. That was the issue, brethren and sisters. Save us by thy hand. It's salvation. It's a parable of deliverance from a God who's made heaven and earth bow down thine ear. What a wonderful figure that speech that is, of God bowing and listening. Open thine eyes. I beseech thee, save us. That all the earth, in verse 19, may know that thou art Yahweh, even thou only. That's the language of David against Goliath. It's the language of Joshua beside the river Jordan. It's the language of Isaiah chapter 2 that God alone will shake the earth. And that's how the prayer finished, ascribing honour and glory to God. And God's reply, verse 22, the virgin, the daughter of Zion, all the language of the virgin's fount, has despised thee and laughed thee to scorn. As God took up the language of the promise that he'd made, there will be strength to bring forth. Power will be given for you. I will deliver you. And you shall be saved. And that night, in verse 36, the angel of Yahweh went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. That's almost the language of the Exodus. The angel of Yahweh going out, says kings, by night. It's Passover. The feast that was held by Hezekiah 13 years ago now finds its dramatic conclusion as the angel of Yahweh goes out by night and smites the enemy. We can well imagine the next morning as the people raced to the walls for the next day of conflict and there was absolute silence there in the field. Do you know what Hezekiah wrote on that occasion? In our final quote in Psalm 126, we have his feelings on that occasion. As the host in all its ugliness and brutality, itself was conquered by death. 
And the breeze fluttering through the standards and the flags, and absolute silence in the field. And Hezekiah wrote these words in Psalm 126. When Yahweh turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, Yahweh hath done great things for us. Yahweh hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. He imagined the relief, the release of tension, the unexpected ecstasy of deliverance in that fashion. And you know, young people and brethren and sisters, those words, the spirit of those words will be repeated for those of us who stand at the judgment seat of God with the enemy destroyed. And to have God change our frame from mortality to immortality. To have bestowed upon us the joy of eternal life. When all the distress of this life and the burdens and the anxieties and the pressures which press heavily upon us shall be released. And Yahweh shall turn away the captivity of this mortal frame. We shall be like them that dream. It's all worth it, young people. In the end, the struggle is worth it. There is a need amongst us now to trust in God, though the circumstances of life are exceedingly difficult at times and to wait for our God in full assurance of faith that he may change this mortal frame, that he may turn our captivity, and that we may be like them that dream in ecstasy and glory. Indeed, brethren, sisters and young people, let us remember our God and think upon his greatness, for he hath done great things for us, whereof we are exceedingly glad.